welcome to the Seventh Art Podcast, a podcast on cinema. Uh, we're also a video magazine on cinema, which you can see at www.theseventhart.org. I'm Brian Robertson, a producer on the magazine, and with me is Christopher Heron, who is a host and a producer. So the interview you're about to hear is with Canadian documentary filmmaker Jennifer Beishwal. Uh, she had just had her film Watermark in the Toronto International Film Festival this year, 2013. Uh, we were lucky enough to be joined by Jennifer at the Nicholas Mativier Gallery, which actually represents Edward Bertinsky, who was a collaborator on her latest film, um, and actually a subject of her previous film, Manufactured Landscapes. We talked to Jennifer about um, Watermark and Manufactured Landscapes in a relationship with uh, Edward Bertinsky as collaborators, now co-directors on Watermark. Um, and then we link it back to her other documentaries that you maybe haven't seen and, and tease out the thematic links between, say, Act of God, uh, Payback, The True Meaning of Pictures, and Let It Come Down. Uh, I mean, on the face of it, they're all connected in the fact that they all focus on artists. Payback prominently features Margaret Atwood, Act of God features uh, author Paul Oster and uh, musician Fred Frith. True Meaning of Pictures is about the photographer Shelby Lee Adams, and Let It Come Down is about the author Paul Bowles and his relationship uh, with Allen Ginsberg and William S. Burroughs. Um, so we, we touch on them all, but we're, we're, we're focused mostly on Watermark, which is getting its release now. and when you're listening to this, may already be available on uh, VOD or DVD. Mm. Enjoy. Are you rolling now? Yeah. But we'll cut that yeah, out. Yeah, I know. I do that too, but I don't like the soft roll. <laughs> um, do you want them to be quiet? They're, they're okay talking. It's fine, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, well, let's start officially. Okay. Um, we, when you're approaching this project with, with Edward, um, do you think that this is the beginning of, or not the beginning, but it's a signal of a consistent relationship that will continue to occur throughout both of your careers now that you've got two in the bank? It's kind of interesting because we didn't talk about it that way but uh, um, as soon as we finished this and we were sort of you know sending it out into the world sending Watermark out into the world we started sort of getting into this dangerous territory of talking about so maybe we should do something again and both Ed and I are trying to take a bit of a sabbatical right now um, maybe not a whole year, but a break, because it's been, um, I would say this is probably the most intense film that I worked on, especially in editing, because um, trying to find a way of interweaving 20 different threads um, uh, that could not be traditionally narrative, like they couldn't have a narrative arc because there were too many of them, was it was intense, so I'm tired. But uh, but I also think that it's a pretty rich relationship, and and I think there are points of contact in the way that Ed and Nick and I work. Um, and so one of the reasons that he was drawn to our work before Manufactured Landscapes, and one of the reasons that we were drawn to his photographs, um, is because we inhabit that same non-didactic place. I think in in our work, and so bringing those two together, um, it was really, I mean, it was unexpectedly uh, sort of resonant with manufacturing landscapes. We didn't expect it would have the response that it did. And in this case, we were more, in Watermark, we, we were more aware of that as, as a very deliberate um, approach mm. to the, the vastness of the subject. 
and each time there's a kind of multimedia component because obviously you have the the photographs that are taken you have the books that are published this time you have the installations that you've made in addition to it like is it the type of thing where you shoot so much you have so much material that it's going to continue to grow in a multimedia way um, I think there will be another there will be more lives of this iterations of mm. this project um, simply because we live in that world now where that's those threads are much more um, possible and in, indeed kind of necessary in terms of getting it out there. I mean, I think that in terms of, uh, for Ed, it's probably the body of work that is the most, the strongest part. And for us, the strongest part is the film. Um, but the fact that they all kind of inform each other is really nice. That didn't happen with Manufactured Landscapes. I mean, the book came out, uh, the China book came out at around the same time, but it wasn't um, Ed had already done most of his shooting in manufactured landscapes by the time we went to China with him. That was his last trip. Um, whereas in this case, he had only just begun this project. So we, all, we really went on that journey together um, and, uh, and were able to be a bit, plan a bit more in terms of, of releasing things at the same time. What was the nitty-gritty of, of co-directing this time around? Like, how did you kind of divide those, or was it more organic? It was pretty organic. I mean, we didn't... Um, it's funny, because we talked about it a bit at the beginning, and I said, okay, Ed, you've got two options. Um, well, three options. One is that you do a film yourself, and... Uh, I can mentor you and just give you advice through the process and so I'll, I'll, we can talk about it and that will be one way of making a foray into film. And then the other way of doing it is to, I guess there are only two ways, if we are going to do it together, we're going on a journey together and this is our way of working which you've witnessed but you know we don't write a script beforehand. It's a, the treatment is philosophically durable, like there's thematically but it's not prescriptive. So it's more the product of a lot of research and that then creates a kind of an outline to say, these are the things that we're interested in pursuing. And then the story is made by having the right attitude when you're shooting and when you're on location, a kind of um, openness to the reality of where you are. and an ability to be somewhere authentically without disturbing that place too much mm. and also to convey that to a viewer um, which is a real like minute by minute kind of thing sometimes it really is about an existential attitude about where you are mm. um, and then the the heavy lifting happens in editing in terms of putting the story together and so I said if you want to do that together that would be great um, but it's a different process and mm. you'll have to submit to a, to a certain extent. And he said I, he really wanted to do that. So the, what ended up happening in production, it was really interesting because the, we just naturally moved into areas of strength in a way. And, and when you look at Ed's photographs, and I mean, I've said this before, but his, it's, it's, it's sometimes not obvious where to stand when you get to some of these places. In fact, in all of these places, it's not obvious. It's not like there's one place you go, well, that's it. That's the place that's going to convey the scale of this context, or this is the vantage point. And Ed has this uncanny ability to find that place yes. and, and to know how to convey that. Um, but that wide view is only one part of the film. And we knew from the very beginning, and I knew, that in order for those, that level to work, uh, there had to be detail. So it, we had to move back and forth constantly between, with a dialectic between detail and scale. And the detail is more about wandering around in a context and, and being open to it. And that Nick and I are very good at. So we would, you know, in some cases, like when we were in China, we had a massive crew because we had these remote helicopter guys with us and um, translators and fixers and stuff. And so uh, we would just sneak off with a translator and try to find these little stories while Ed was organizing mm. the big view. And that worked really well together. 
Um, and you know, sometimes it shifted, and we were we would be doing different things. We did a lot of helicopter shooting, and so um, sometimes Nick would be with Ed up in the helicopter. Sometimes I would be, um, and but so there was a fluidity to a certain extent. But I would say that mainly that's where that's how things worked out for us as as co-directing in terms of uh, shooting. Was that fluidity something that informed the structure as well? Because I noticed when I was watching it that it's not. There's not like a very clear structure like we're at, in this location, now we're moving to this one. They all have like an equal weight, like maybe like a Peter Mettler film. Um, but it, it does seem like there's some that are like the surfing scene is very short compared to the more like ritualistic scene that precedes it. And I'm, I'm wondering how in the editing process, which you said was difficult, you kind of decided how to balance these different stories. I mean, that's the, that's the struggle. And that's also for me, the most challenging and interesting part, in a way, is editing. And I would say that, um, you know, film is really deeply collaborative, right? So I would say that in research and in, in production, it was really Ed, Nick DePonce, and myself who were constantly sort of throwing all of these ideas around. And Nick, as the person who was interpreting cinematographically, these scenes and the the detail like he was sort of in both all the time but in the edit room it really was Roland Schlimm who also edited Manufactured Landscapes and I in the trenches and uh, Ed was really busy putting the exhibitions together and the book and so he couldn't be in there in the day-to-day -day. and um, he would come in for screenings with Nick but Roland and I were in there every day and we after I mean it's always it's a similar process for every film that we do, but we we log all of the footage first, so watch everything, um, which in this case was like 220, 230 hours, and then um, and then start just whittling it down, and it really becomes a question of rhythm mm. and flow. So, in some cases. Um, stories that ended up being a bit longer. If you were very linear about, you know, we're going to give five minutes to each of these stories, um, that would begin to feel predictable as a structure uh, and arbitrary, right? So, uh, but I wanted the, the rhythm of it to flow a bit like a river. Mm. And I also wanted there to be um, illumination through juxtaposition. So by putting things together, they sort of shone on each other in, in, in a particular way. Like at the beginning, you see this, you know, the silt release, and then you're in a, uh, a desert, essentially. And then the Kumela going to the surfing derby, or these transitions that kind of, you're not really sure where you are for a moment. Um, and then you, you start to be aware of, of the thematic um, strains that are encompassing all of these stories. Uh, so that was very deliberate, and Roland has an incredible, I mean, he's a, he's a musician, right? So he has an incredible sense of visual rhythm, and that, I've been, I was an editor, like a copy editor in the past with language um, in my old life, so I kind of, I'm very attuned to rhythm as well, and, and that was something that uh, was really important. And it's just a question of keeping going, like if I told you how many iterations or different combinations of those stories we had. I mean, I think we had 60, 70 cuts and, you know, I mean, there were a lot, we edited for a year, so, so it, it just is a question of moving things around and looking at, at how they influence each other and how they feel together. Um, that's how it ends up happening. I did know when I saw the Stikeen River um, sequence that I wanted that to be at the end um, and and we sort of worked around that a bit but that was sort of clear um, but other than that not was that just intuition or was there kind of a symbolic function that it no, had for it you? was intuition it was when I first saw that when we when I looked at that sequence which is unbelievable because it's one long shot and in a way it's like a reference to manufactured landscapes mm -hmm. but it was a trying to I mean, the whole film is meant to be immersive, but that particular scene is really meant to say, well, this is, this is a river before we mess around with it. Like, this is a river in nature. This is what a river is meant to be like. Um, that flowing uh, um, 
meandering, you know, not linear mm. thing. And I, I, that, so it was both symbolic and after seeing it. Just like when we shot that factory shot in manufactured landscapes, I knew as soon as we had shot it that if it worked, it was going to be the beginning of the film because it was this kind of perfect example of translation of scale into a time-based medium. So when, when you're deciding how to deal with these in a non-didactic way, is there ever a moment where you're thinking, mm, if maybe if we had a little explanation in that moment, that would benefit it? Or is it, like a, is it a struggle at this point, or is, are you just so accustomed to that format? that? No, no, we, we always push it too much. Like, I always get to a point where there's too much information. I mean, we did cuts where there was a lot more narration and information, and it became, I think once you then you expect a different kind of a film. So it's, it, that's also about balance and rhythm. So we had cuts that had a lot, we pulled back, and then it was a question of how much can we pull back mm. without becoming completely nonverbal, right? Like Samsara, how can we do, you know, occupying that space in between um, a linear argument and something that is completely, uh, you know, non-narrative, non... And I, I, and, and the film dictated it, so it wasn't like, oh, we have to find this perfect balance and I know what it is. It was story by story, really. And one of the things that we knew when we were, you know, editing down the possibly, I mean, I think we had about 200 or some, you know, between 100 and 200 different, 150 and 200 different ideas of stories. We told ourselves that in order for them to be part of the film, they had to be visually compelling. And also, they, you had to be able to describe them in one or two sentences. Otherwise, there were, you'd spend so much time um, on backstory trying to figure it out. Owen's Lake was the most complicated thing to explain because you know you have to talk about a river was redirected, a lake dried up, but in the process of the river being redirected, people were displaced, and you know it was there were a series of stories there, and that was very hard to figure out. At, you know, at one point we had. We opened that scene with that Chinatown scene where yeah, yeah. Roman Polanski cuts <laughs> Jack Nicholson's nose, and um, you know what, what does he say? You're nosy. You're like a you're, cat. You're or pretty nosy. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, uh, and then you know that was from another era, so it didn't work. But so that was part of the re that's how it worked. And and the non-didactic thing. I mean. <sighs> A lot of documentaries are pretty linear, and they 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 are great because they th th it's a form that works. Hmm. Um, but I find uh, often that those arguments are reductive, um, necessarily so. Clarity requires reduction, right? <laughs> because reality is not um, it's messier and more complicated and ambiguous. And I'm much happier, sort of inhabiting that ambiguity and illuminating it rather than trying to dispel it, mm. you know. Do you think that it's like a productive tension though? Um, I, I was thinking, I, I rewatched Manufactured Landscapes and, and uh, there's a moment where Ed talks about how he doesn't want the pictures to tell someone what to look at because it will change how they look at the world, hopefully. And that's something that kind of comes up in Act of God at the beginning as well, this idea of how you perceive things. But there's also this other theme through your work, which is the artist um, in their art, they can't say everything that obviously they're thinking, and sometimes that can result in misinterpretation, like in the, the Shelby, uh, Lee Adams. So is that a kind of a tension, like you, you want to keep that abstraction, that poetry, but there's also, then you're opening it up to maybe misinterpretation or... Yeah, but I would argue, I mean, I would argue that there is no such thing as misinterpretation mm. because it's not like we're trying to get a clear message across and it's always easier for somebody to say what are you trying to say with this film and you say well I'm trying to say this and and then well if you're gonna say that then just say that like it's a thing the film has to be a thing in itself it has to be an experience in itself and also I think a work of art in itself mm. so that it and and art is it's a rich arena because it can, because it can create a lot of different responses at the same time. You know, the mo emotional response, the intellectual response, the visceral response, and also just something that is, if it was paraphrasable, 
it wouldn't be what it is because then it would just be that thing that you paraphrased it would be so I mean I find that very interesting there is something irreducible about it mm. and um, and I think we've always wanted our, our work to be the same so I'm always fascinated when somebody comes up with a completely different interpretation <laughs> like there was a woman who saw manufactured landscapes and she with that opening factory shot what she was thinking she said I saw that and I thought what a company now that's a company <laughs> and I just thought that's incredible like I love that I mean I, I most people look at that and 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 have this feeling of increasing dread and horror at, at our scale of operation on the earth but I mean that's interesting to me that's not something that I take offense at I was thinking of Tuba Bien when I saw that the guitar the like when it goes back and forth but it's like a similar shot in like a commercial space as well yes so yeah I guess there's never-ending interpretation <laughs> um, exactly Ed's, Ed said though that this is maybe his most abstract work or his most he said poetic as well he put the two together poetic perhaps the most abstract and poetic is there any reason you may think that that's the case well I mean I thought it was fascinating when Ed sort of figured out that he could really only convey water by getting up high uh, and that, you know, the, the efforts we went to get up high in, in, in different locations, in different contexts were, you know, pretty arduous, mm -hmm. like the helicopters, the 50-foot pole, the lifts, the, uh, everything, the remote helicopters. And I think the result of that was that you get this kind of view that can toggle back and forth between something that is completely abstract and then something that is actually quite narrative in mm. some cases or has all of these potential narrative threads and I do think it is his most abstract work to date and what's interesting about it is I just love that moment where you're not sure what you're looking at for a moment and then the details reveal themselves to you and then you kind of situ situate yourself contextually and in terms of scale like am I looking at something that's tiny or am I looking at something that's massive and um, that actually lends itself very well I think to film to a filmic interpretation because um, it keeps you paying attention when you're not sure where you are and you can't do that too much because then people get tired of, of doing all of that work but those little moments where you're you're not quite sure of, of what is happening, I think open up mm. a, a response. Um, and back to what we were talking about before, I do think it's more powerful to shift consciousness through something that is experiential mm. rather than a didactic argument. I think that that's, because Ed's point was if you tell people, you know, this is good or bad, then the people who think that it's one way will just stop listening to you and the others where you're already sort of preaching to the converted so it's not about starting a conversation and it's also not about an illumination back on yourself as the viewer and your implication in the whole thing and I just I think that the act of viewing is as much a collaborative act in film as every other part of film um, it's not like here's the product and you just have to passively you know, digest it as a viewer. It's it's collaborative even in that experience. That last shot is very embodied. Like it almost requires a spectator to feel like they are in some ways like moving with the river. Yeah. It, I, I, I I'm curious though about um, something that uh, came up in uh, oh in um, in the Shelby doc. There's you've got aerial photography in in there as well, and it seems like it's in a lot of your work. And I'm wondering what you think theoretically about when you do get up into that helicopter, when you are shooting from above? You know, it's interesting because it is this, it's not just a bird's eye view, but it's sort of a privileged viewpoint. In that case, in the Shelby film, the, the whole metaphor of the woods is so pervasive in that, in, in interpretations of that culture, right? Um, that you don't know what's going to happen in the woods when you get into the woods and there was something to me about that That was very powerful, but also something to be questioned, right? Um, so that those aerials and that was literally Nick with a harness hanging out of a, a plane um, 
you know, who, he has a fear of heights. I guess he doesn't anymore, but that was pretty perilous. Like, we didn't have the money for a helicopter or anything for that film. But um, it, it, I do feel like there is this thing about you're here and then you go down into something and, and it allows you to have that movement. Um, I also think it kind of draws attention to the fact that, like, the Shelby film is all about problems of representation. and those problems extend as much to us as the filmmakers and you as the viewer as they do to him as a photographer and the people who view his work. And that sort of power relationship, which I've often said is the inverted triangle because the subject's always on the bottom mm -hmm. and the viewer and the filmmaker or the photographer are on the top. And I'm very aware in our work of the ethical implications of our um, presence somewhere. And I'm always thinking about that when we're shooting and when we're editing, because I do think that if you are not... I mean, I've, I've said it, I've called it kindness before, that there has to be a kindness in the gaze, but by that I don't mean um, that it can't be critical. It can be critical, but, it, but there, there there has to be an openness to that. Um, and I do think there has to be some kind of authentic exchange of vulnerability um, for something to be real. And it's not something you can just sort of get out of the way as, oh, you know, I'll tell you a secret and then you can tell me about all your secrets. Like, that's ridiculous. It can't be that. Um, and I do think Shelby does that, mm. which is what has kept me from, uh, you know, kept me sort of engaged by his work all this time. I mean, I still don't know what to think of it, and I still have not been able to answer the questions that we raised, and that was the other point of that film, was just to raise those questions, mm. not to answer them. Um, but I, I guess I feel like um, the aerial perspective also kind of draws attention to that um, omniscience that you can have mm. as a filmmaker in terms of how you deal with the material. Um, and that's why I think that you have to be very ethically engaged or aware in every process because of that power. And, and when you're shooting Ed at doing his work as well, I mean, you, you have a different gaze than the one that he has when he's doing the photography. Um, do you, do you feel like you can raise different viewpoints? I think with Shelby, you obviously have the, you have the critics that you bring in to kind of raise questions, but working with Ed, is there ever moments where maybe your perspective literally and figuratively differs from his and you can have the space to include that? Yeah, that's interesting because in, in manufactured landscapes, I deliberately didn't focus on that, on you know, what is the frame we're looking at or you know, whose frame how much are you interfering with the frame kind of thing, because we did it so extensively in Shelby, but also because I wanted to refer to it in a more, um, in a subtler, more unconscious way. So that in manufactured landscapes, that opening where you go from, you know, the lineup of workers, and then you realize that Ed is taking a picture of them, and then you see somebody looking at that picture in a gallery, there are all these different, iterations of frame and it just kind of sets you up as a viewer to say okay I'm not really ever sure whose perspective I'm looking at here um, which should be the case with all documentary uh, film I think that, that you not to be suspicious of, of perspective but to be aware that we are talking about perspective um, I think that there's still a kind of default to uh, a, an acceptance of journalistic objectivity in the form, mm. um, even though most people, if you ask them seriously about it, they would never claim that objectivity is possible, they still default into that. You know, you have a narrator telling you and you don't question what the narrator is saying. You take it to be true, right? Um, so I feel like that's always an issue to some extent in, in our films. Um, because it just is part of the form. But in, in when we're filming Ed, I mean, it's kind of interesting because in manufactured landscapes, he was the author more than a traditional subject. And in this film, he's there even less in some ways because he's there as this 
person who's introduced as working on the book and getting the photographs ready for that, which is exactly what he was doing at the time that we started filming. Um, but we were very careful about not having him arbitrarily in the landscape. Mm. Just like we were very careful about not having arbitrary cutaways to photographs for no reason, right? I mean, it, if, if we're there in the same place and we're filming, like the Colorado River Delta, for example, why would we just cut to a still of that when it, it, it's the same frame and we're interpreting it filmically or cinematographically at that point? There's no reason to, to include the stills. And it was kind of an interesting reflection because when Peter Mettler and I were talking about manufactured landscapes before we went to China and trying to figure out how do we intelligently convey or translate the meaning of these photographs into the medium of film, um, at one point he suggested, well, let's just not show any photographs. And I said, that's really interesting, but we're not there yet. Like that's not, in, it, it has to be at about an, inter, an interplay to some extent um, between the vision of his frame and our extrapolation of it uh, from it. But in this film, that's much less the case. So we were able to pull back and there are not many photographs in the film. Mm. There are photographs that are of places that we didn't go to that are, that expand a particular theme like waterfront, mm. for example. But uh, uh, so I guess that's a long answer to that question because it's not, um, there were never moments where the perspectives were opposed, mm. um, but there were moments where, you know, Ed is a, was a director, so his vision was happening in the film already. So we didn't have to make reference to it as, as for him as a photographer, except in certain situations where it just seemed to make sense. Mm. There's one shot that sticks in my mind. It's, it's where it's a, a film about you know marks that you leave uh, as one half of it of the equation, and you see the bin of like the I guess like the waste that's coming yeah. out of, yeah. of Ed's work, and, and that's interesting to me because this is a film that's not about the gallery the way that manufactured landscapes was or seeing those presented. It's about the kind of labor of like create like not just shooting but the actual labor of making it and. And labor is an interesting theme in your work as well, be it the artist or something like payback. Um, I was wondering why focus on in Watermark the um, that process in the in the life cycle of the work. Well, I think because it was a different from the very beginning. The same grappling that Ed was doing with how to organize the book was the grappling that we were doing of how to organize the film. And we shot a lot in the studio of him and Marcus and him trying to figure out if I do these five categories or four categories, which were, you know, source and control, um, which are obvious, you know, what, uh, distressed landscapes, um, waterfront, which encompasses the Kumela as much as the surfing derby or you know, the people living in those weird places that are constructed waterfront. And then agriculture and aquaculture, because agriculture is such a huge draw of, of fresh water. Um, those were the categories. And he kept trying to figure out whether he was being too reductive by putting everything into those categories or whether there was another category that he was missing or should he be a bit more oblique about the categories. And also his struggle between being poetic and giving information because at one point he thought maybe I'll have the photograph on one side and then there'll be an explanation of what you're looking at on the other because if you're looking at you know um, subsidence for example in the Sacramento Delta you only understand that photograph if you if you know that you know the we're talking about land that is a number of feet I don't know how many it is maybe 17 feet below sea level um, but it takes a lot to understand that right so he was grappling with that. In the end, he, his juxtapositions were more poetic and the information is in the back of the book. Mm. But just as he went through that process, it was fascinating to me how complex it was to, you know, water is a massive subject and the way that he tried to figure out how to present it really followed along the same things that we were doing in the edit room. So in a way that 
stuff about the labor and the putting the book together is a reflection on the process of, of making the film, um, of, of the structural aspects of making the film. And it was, you know, from the beginning we knew that it would be impossible to be comprehensive or to even pretend mm -hmm. to be comprehensive. So instead of trying that, um, finding these little stories that were iconic of a bigger, um, iconic sort of representations of um, a bigger issue like industrial water. Mm -hmm. So industrial water became represented by the tanneries of, of Dhaka. Um, source became represented by northern British Columbia and the Stikine watershed, et cetera, et cetera. So um, anyway, that's how that worked. It seems like um, it's kind of like in Act of God, there's the making the logical logical and then making the illogical logical with the, the Fred Frith yeah. um, being analyzed, but also the not wanting to narrativize something as being like a lightning strike because it was meant to be. Yes. And is that something that you're also with with this film with watermark <coughs> like whether you're being didactic or whether it's the process of should i put the information in the back of the book that ed's going to like there is this kind of idea of how much that topic's coming up like am i trying to make something that has no clear understanding to make it understandable or to just leave it the way it is and hope that the audience understands that I mean, it is an issue, like I remember in Act of God, we got, there were lots of people who were um, mad that there was no conclusion to the experiment with Fred. Yeah. And for me, it was kind of like the, just the very fact that his brother is trying this with him and, and it's the connection between neurons and, you know, lightning strikes, neurons firing, that was enough. Like that, it w that was all that was interesting. And the end where Fred sort of plays a lightning storm that then fits with Paul Auster's story. That felt like the, for me, the conclusion of that experiment mm. because he was improvising that storm and his brain was, you know, going crazy and while this, while it was going crazy outside. But it is a, it's a difficult, it is difficult for some people and we've always had a response to our films in general that are, you know, uh, you've got to come down on one side or the other here. In the Shelby film, for example, that was, you know, well, what, why, what's the conclusion here? And it's, everybody has, I mean, that film more than any other, I think, has so many different responses. You know, people who think he should be able to do what he wants, people who, um, you know, think he's a total fraud and his voice changes when he goes down <laughs> there from when he's teaching. And, mm. you know, there, it's just so interesting to hear people's, response and the whole point of the film was to open up that discussion so but it's not easy and I feel like the I'm always only trying to give enough information to contextualize what you're looking at without telling you what to think about it um, and I think Ed does that too I mean Ed talks about giving somebody the keys to the room without you know describing everything that's in the room and and that experience I think is more powerful than the affirmation of what you already think about something or, um, I mean, both can be powerful, but for me, that's, it's more powerful to do it that way. And it kind of, I mean, the first time I saw one of Ed's photographs, it was at a, you know, some dinner party and I saw this, I thought it was an abstract kind of Jackson Pollocky painting mm. from a distance. And when I went in closer, um, it was this photograph he did of densified oil filters and I realized I was looking at densified oil filters so garbage essentially mm. and I kind of recoiled I mean it's this beautiful rich abstract photograph but I recoiled from it like oh that's garbage and then in that process of recoiling I immediately went to a place for thinking oh I'm responsible for that so that garbage is my own garbage actually and isn't that interesting to see that to witness something I'm responsible for but would never normally see, right? And, and that, all of manufactured landscapes was really an attempt to illuminate those places, those scrap yards where all our crap goes to, the factories where mm. these things are made. And that somehow by witnessing those places, you would, it would allow you to reflect on your own participation in that. And, and 
that's how I responded to his work. And so I, I feel like um, in this film, the, the existential moments that you're dropped into as a viewer with, you know, the abalone farmer or the rice paddy guard or the people in, on the Kumela who are having these intensely private spiritual moments surrounded by 30 million other people. Um, those open things up in a different way than a, a more traditional narrative stream, I think. So there, it's quite deliberate um, as an approach, even though it may not be, you know, the most popular or easiest approach. Um, are you drawn to these kind of intimate small moments particularly? Do you find yourself like that's what interests you the most? It's about the relationship mm. between the two. So, um, I mean, I am, I, I, I love those moments. I get the, the and, and for me, they're crucial to the film working. Like there are moments where, you know, when the workers are eating their dinner before they go to work, you know, seeing them in, the, in the, those places. Like we, when we were in China the first time, we didn't have the access that we did this time. We had way more access this time. And I just feel like without those little sort of quotidian moments that we all can recognize, they're part of all of our lives. Um, that's what connects us to those people. I love it when the abalone farmer, when his wife asks him, what are we gonna have for lunch? And then he just pulls up this basket that they just have sort of <laughs> at the side of the house and you know, picks out some snails and cooks them for lunch. Like, to me, those are crucial moments to um, root the wide view, the, the, you know, the view from the sky. Because I think that, that, that view would float away without those details, those intimate details. And there's also the literal zooming. We haven't talked about that that occurs. I mean, possibly because you're shooting 5K. I mean, was the decision to shoot in such high resolutions to give yourself that uh, ability to, um, I guess, either go into something, an image, or to come out from it. I know that Ed's, what, 16 megapixels? Like, I mean, it kind of requires it so it doesn't jar the viewer, but I'm curious that technique, what it means to you. I mean, it was very much a, 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 a question of how do we, in film, match the resolution of Ed's photographs. So that was one reason why we tried it. We wanted that. It was a hand-assembled prototype when we got it. And it was the weirdest little, I mean, it's a box. I'm sure you've seen them now. It's very hard to hold. Like, it's not, it's not ergonomically designed for documentary work at all, actually. Um, so Nick had to modify it quite a lot. And we had terrible problems with sound in the beginning because there is no, was no sound recording. So we had to do, you know, um, a double system. And that was kind of complicated because we weren't sure what to record on. So we had some recorders that sort of worked and didn't work. And in the end, we got a whole other camera to be the more documentary camera. So when Nick is walking, but we took them both everywhere. So they were, um, and that, you know, the capacity of us when we're shooting in 5K to be able to move around the frame and, and uh, without a loss of resolution was incredible in editing. We didn't do it that much in the end. Um, Nick has a pretty good eye for balance, um, but we were, it was just trying to create something that cinematically had the same resolution. And we ended up using a lot of different cameras in the end. I mean, I think we had 15 different cameras with us. I mean, we had DSLRs and GoPros and, and they all came into play at one point or the other. But I would, our main cameras were the Epic and the C300, which was our, which we were able to trade off with um, in, in the more arduous places where we were shooting. And the remote helicopters took the Epic and little FS100s and um, uh, Ed's camera. Mm. So we could, you know, we were able to use those for, for all of those um, uh, uses when we were shooting. Mm. When you were mentioning participata participatory kind of experiences, both when you're talking about Ed's photograph that you saw, I, I thought about this particularly, but it's, you, you've, you had kind of adapted payback in, in a way, like, and, and, and in other cases, you're, you have a, maybe an obligation to represent an artist in your, in your film's representation of them. And I'm wondering, 
how that process has gone throughout your career. I mean, you're also credited as a writer too in many of these films. What your adaptation of maybe another artist's work, your collaboration with them, broader than just Ed? I guess. Yeah, that's complicated. And it's something about, I mean, I've had a writer credit on three films on The Holier It Gets, which had actual narration in it that I had to write. And then Payback, because that was my, it was, I, I did that film with the National Film Board and that was part of my, I didn't even know that. I said, why are you calling me the writer? Margaret Atwood's a writer. <laughs> like, I said, no, no, you wrote the treatment and you're the adapter of this. I said, all right, well, I don't really care. And in this case, it was more as a way of referencing the edit room work, I guess. Mm. And, but then we also tried to put in the credits, or it is in the credits, that this was written without a traditional script and was 180 to 1 ratio and was a 12-month a offline mm -hmm. edit. Because I think that's, there's a lot of films that don't have the luxury of doing that anymore. Even when we don't have a big budget, we always edit for that long. Um, but the edit, the working with another artist is really interesting because the, the payback for me, I'd never done, adapted a book before, and that was a very intellectual, um, you know, short but dense book. And when I first read it, I thought, there's no way I'm going to make this into a film. I can't imagine this. And then this great producer at the film board, Ravita Din, kept saying, oh, I think you should just spend a little more time thinking about it. And I, I, I started to imagine these embodied situations where the themes that she talked about in an abstract way would come out, like the Albanian feud, like um, the tomato workers in Florida, um, the coalition of Immokalee workers. And, and that then sort of got me going. And, and, and when I came up with it, I said, you know, there's not a lot of stuff in the book that's in the film, mm. but this is the most, the only way I can imagine to adapt this. And, and they wanted to do that. So that was a, um, uh, I guess, I, I mean, that, the writer thing, I don't, I still don't really understand that. But, <laughs> but I, um, I've always been drawn to artists and art. Like our first film was on the writer Paul Bowles, who loomed large in my consciousness as a teenager and then on from there. And I really felt like, uh, there's a mystery. There's always something. It's part back to that irreducible thing. There's something about art that can't be paraphrased, and just living in the complexity of that world is um, very rich for me. And that's how I started with Ed. And um, I feel like I'm a. Sometimes I feel more of a translator than a creator, and I like to start with something and then find a way of, of, uh, of conveying it in, in film. And that probably comes from, I mean, I had a, a more academic background and I was going to go down that road and become a teacher or a professor and I just got so like frustrated by the limitations of the medium of inquiry mm. in academics and I thought if there was only a way of addressing some of these really interesting issues and opening them up and do film, documentary film, seemed like this perfect medium for um, conveying those ideas. So I, I, that's how I started and I guess I'm still kind of doing that same thing, like trying to tackle these questions of, you know, meaning and identity. You know, Bowles was a they're all problems, like unanswerable problems in some way. The Bowles film was about the impossibility of biography. You know, Shelby is about the problems of representation. Um, Act of God is about metaphysics, you know, when the, the, the relationship between um, uh, meaning and randomness, you know, um, and, and so on and so on. So I think that that just is, it has to be something that, you know, is compelling to me because I, I live with it for so long. Like these are two, three, four year projects. So it's interesting though that in the holier it gets that it seems like you're going to be in it more and even in that case you still somehow find a way to like not quite be <laughs> in it. Yeah, that was God, I, I still 
remember the panic I had getting there thinking what the hell have I done why did I ever think I could make a movie about this um, I've made a terrible terrible mistake and and that I mean that whole film was about which I took on rather lightly and then regretted was the problems of confessional work like confessional work is so tricky and so many people do it badly you know and then a few people do it really beautifully and really well and and why I was like what is the difference like what 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 makes it work and what makes it doesn't work not work and um, that's how I started making that and it became about so many more things than that as I was in the process of it because that was a I mean in that film really things don't go according to plan and in the beginning when I was editing I felt like I had to pretend that we had done what we said we were going to do um, and it took me you know a couple of months in the edit room to realize that the whole film was about things not going the way you thought that they were going to go and that made me realize as a filmmaker that that really is part of the my definition of what it is to be a documentary filmmaker is to have a plan but be ready to abandon it at any moment and live in that liminal place um, which is between it's in between things like it, there's no sort of e thing that's easy to hold on to um, but that's the only way that you can be alive to 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 the context and the moment thanks Jennifer yeah great okay